Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Now, I know y'all hear me say this every time I have a podcast. I'm going to say it again. Today, I'm really excited to have one of my colleagues and friends that we met in the elevator back in 2001. Oh, my God. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. One of my colleagues, Dr. Sabrina Sanders. How are you today? Corliss, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me on uh, Voices from the Field. It's so great to be back with NASPA, um, the professional association that's responsible for where I'm at today, um, thanks to the programs and the mentors that I've had over the the past umpteen years. Absolutely. What she's referring to is the topic for today, which is from Nuff Mentee to Higher Education Thought leader. Ooh, that's deep. That's just so deep. Education thought. You really put that some funk on that one, didn't you? Education thought leader. So we're going to go ahead and just get some background on Miss Sabrina. But I, I must say, I have, I have to tell this story. Were we in the airport? Or it wasn't until we got into the um, hotel at um, the regional. That was a the car rental line. That's what it was. Right, right. So the Western Regional Conference in, I want to say it was Halloween because we went downtown mm-hmm. and we saw the parade. Wow. Yep. Halloween 2001. And you know, as student affairs professionals, we're, you know, they call us the happy, happy people. You know, we, we've got icebreakers. We know how to talk on an elevator type thing. We're just so wee, right? Well, we met um, at the airport. I think we gave you a ride, didn't we? Sure did. I was trying to save my campus some money. Right. <laughs> so we were walking and all of us were getting off the, you know, where are you from? Where are you from? And so you ended up coming with us and standing in line at the car rental place. And in Maui, and that's a little hint for those who are from the East Coast wishing that you had a conference in Maui. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, we met at the Western Regional Conference in Maui in October 31st through like November something, 2001. And what was really interesting about that as a side note, it was after 9-11. And if you recall, a lot of folks canceled their reservations, canceled everything that had to do with flying at that time. And I remember my best friend, who's also in the industry per se, or in higher ed, she talked to her mom and her mom told her not, now we're all grown, right? But her mom told her not to fly. And I, you know, I didn't even think to call my mom. So I said, well, I'll call her. Mm. And as we lead into this podcast, it's really funny. So her thought was, well, Corliss, you'll either die going to paradise or die coming from paradise. You can't go wrong. Gotta love parents. So Dr. Sabrina has an interesting background where it comes to NASPA. And I think you and a very uh, quite a few of our colleagues can be the poster child for NASPA. So let's talk about you as the poster's child, starting as a mentee enough. Go for it. I don't know if I'm a poster child, but um, I think back to, you know, my career um, started as a as a student at Cal State San Marcos, and I was a business major, and I chose my major, you know, as a high school student looking at the two top salaried careers, and it was computer science and business. So if you look at my high school yearbook, it said to to be a millionaire and be a successful businesswoman. That that was my goal. So yeah, my 
degrees in business and even even did a master's in business. When I was in college, things were really tough for me. I was the first in my family to leave my rural community, go off to college. Like most students, financial aid and my two part-time jobs weren't always sufficient to make it through the month. So I was applying to every scholarship opportunity I could find. And I applied for the NUF program. I had no idea what a fellowship was. I remember I was desperate and just needed to pay rent and put that gas in the car. So a couple weeks passed and I was called in to meet with the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs at Cal State San Marcos, Sandra Kukler. She told me I was uh, accepted into the program and laid out the commitment to me for me and all the things I had to do. My on-campus student assistant job was really, really supportive. So there was no issue meeting all the requirements or the attendance at the conferences. And all I was thinking about during those meetings is what what I received this fellowship money. I was so demure in that meeting. I didn't even ask how much the dollar amount was or when I would receive the funds from the program. So I went about those weekly meetings and with my bi-weekly meetings with my mentor and she would send me articles. We would discuss what's happening in higher ed. Um, she would enter campus and hot topics to me and my to my department and we would she would check in on me. She really wanted to hear all about what was going on in my life with my family, how the transition to college was going on. Um, and she'd even set up informational interviews with the department heads. Uh, this not only introduced me to different aspects of, of student affairs and in and, and the different departments on campus, but it really gave me a lot of social capital on campus. She also took me along to the regional NASPA and national conferences and never leave me by myself. Instead, she was introducing me to everyone and including me in the conversations and giving me strategies of how to work a conference. And I had the best experiences anyone could hope for. After shadowing her, I was able to be co-mentored by so many in the field, you know, many of the folks that I'm sure you can, we would claim as mentors, Renee Barnett, Terry at UCSD, mm-hmm. Doris Ching, University of Hawaii, Michael Jackson, SC, Jim Lyons at Stanford, Doug Woodard, Melvin Terrell at Northern Illinois University, Bob Naples, uh, Henry G. I can go on and on the people that, you know, co-mentored and have supported me throughout this career. is one the best experiences I've ever had and Sandy's authenticity, her compassionate leadership and acknowledging who I was and the potential that I had to offer provided me a really strong foundation that one could have never ever imagined. So I really owe it to the mentoring, the NASPA Minority Undergraduate Fellowship Program, to all the mentors, uh, Sandy Kukler at San Marcos, and all the other folks that have taken me under their wings and, you know, the professional development experience that I've, I've had through the various aspects of NASPA, the conferences, the drive-in workshop, the leadership roles, and, and the friendship that you make at the car rental line while on your way to a regional conference. Absolutely. And you've named some heavy hitters in that particular group. And there's way more than that. But I mean, you really have named some folks and and people don't understand, you know, when I tell them they hear, oh, or I should say my mom, this NASPA thing. I remember when I first told her when I was going, my first NASPA was in Indianapolis, 2000. And she was like, well, what did I said, well, it's just like everybody that does what I do. That was the, you know, because I couldn't explain it to her mm-hmm. until as I continued to be a part of it. And then I believe you you dragged me into an African-American knowledge community <laughs> meeting. Right. After we met in 01, it was like, come on, just come on with me. And I'm like, what is going on? I think we owe two. I want to say, I can't remember if that was Boston or whatever, but you were like, come on. I was like, Ugh. and so you were the Southern California rep for AAKC and you pulled me in. And then I became the Southern California rep with you. And then 
Next thing I know it, I'm the national rep for like seven <laughs> years. And this was before they had the rule where after you serve, you got to wait a term before you serve because everybody kept using their same people. And you guys were kept saying, well, you're doing fine. Just go ahead and keep doing this. So we were like, <laughs> OK, me and Jim. But I will definitely say that it wasn't until the NUF program actually came to the University of Southern California, uh, where everybody knows I've said where I've worked there for 20 years, that I truly understood the impact of what NUF can do for undergraduate as they begin to think Yes, you were a business major, but I don't think you ever worked in business, correct? I did. Right out of after I graduated, I went and worked for a, a Norwegian company um, doing marketing and sales and, and just had no sense of fulfillment from it. And so I did that for about a year and then came back to the institution and started looking back for jobs uh, back at the university. And, and did I use my business? I really, I really value that business degree and that what I learned in it. And I think it's made me that much more diverse as a, as a student student affairs professional. So while I lacked some of the developmental and counseling curriculum foundation, I really have uh, been strong in other aspects of the administrative budgeting, personnel, organizational development aspect of my career. Right. Okay. So when you said you had the opportunity, once you got in, you know, pulled in, sucked into student affairs, did that quick stint in business because a year is kind of like, like you never really left type thing, even though you had some, let me not doubt your experience, but but that student affairs drew you right back into higher ed. So tell us some of your positions and some of the background of some of the institutions that you worked for. Sure. My first job, you know, as a student assistant, which many of us have worked on campus. I mean, I mean, think about the value of a student employment experience, not only just to pay the bills and for retention and support and that sense of belonging, but also helps build your portfolio and your career experience. So my first job was working at, this is before Proposition 209, um, when the department was called uh, Student Affirmative Action. So I was sent out to high schools, community colleges, the Indian reservations, Samoan and African American churches, and talking about college. And with all first-generation, low-income students of color, so everything about time management, why at college application, financial aid, all those those basic skills that we wanted to ingrain in students that that they uh, would envision a college path for themselves. So happenstance, when I was a high school student, it was somebody much like I was doing. I was a Cal SOAP counselor that worked with the high school kids and pulled them out of class and talked about going to college. And and beknownst to me, I was not on a college prep track during my freshman year of English. There was the English learners, ESL English, the English 9, the college prep 9, and then the ninth grade gate AP English. And I was in the, the English, ni- the ninth grade English, which was not a college prep. So that Cal SOAP counselor that advised me to get on that college pr- uh, prep track um, is what probably one of those those ed equity programs that I've felt so strongly about how we advocate for our first gen low income students of color, how we in, empower, provide the skills, work with the families and parents, and, and give the vision and the resources to in order to provide the appropriate tools to aspire to college education. So, so I worked for the four year University of CSU doing outreach um, admissions for a number of years, and went and worked at community college doing student activities 
and worked with the student government. I went to a private university, worked in outreach, again, admissions, and was what they call a roadrunner for two years, um, hitting all the high schools and community colleges representing the university. Um, moved up to Cal State Fullerton, worked in a number of areas in student affairs, including athletic academics, volunteer and service learning assessment, and returned to the community college. And then um, now at a system-wide level, working at the California State University Chancellor's Office. And because I haven't had a lot of student interaction in this position, I had the opportunity to, to serve as an adjunct faculty member for a number of years working at Cal State Long Beach in their student development higher ed program too. So a little bit of everything, the Cal State, the uh, private university, the California Community Colleges, and in a variety of student affairs area. My mentor told me early on to be a generalist, to gain lots of different diverse experiences that would add to my portfolio of, of supporting student success. Wow, absolutely. And again, as I mentioned earlier, those are the types of experiences that lead us right into student affairs. You know, you had a taste of it tried to go out and do the business thing, came back in it. There are a lot of us, not including me, but there are a lot of us that fall into it because of, you know, somebody who did have a business major and did do a business type job and then became, you know, the business manager of student affairs or the business manager in fi- or a financial aid person. And now they're on a campus and now they're in higher ed. So, so many ways that a lot of our colleagues who are now presidents, VPs, vice chancellors, and somewhat uh, and so forth, that are now in higher ed because they fell into it and didn't have that opportunity to be mentored like you. Right. I mean, there's so, such a diversity of paths and a diversity of circumstances, right, and instances. And I think that's why we have a responsibility, too, to create those positive circumstances and try to bring these resources, this knowledge, this information um, to folks that aren't always given this information at the dining room table um, with their family or friends or, or what have it. So, you know, it's just been a series of blessings and opportunities in staying open. Open. I think I think I remember you, Corliss, always say saying, uh, "If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready." And you know, as doctoral uh, folk, we have to cite our reference, and that is a uh, reference from the infamous rapper Sugar Free. Um, he uh, has a, sco- a song called, I believe, it's called "Stay Ready," and it actually those are his lyrics. So I always reference him because I don't want the student conduct police after me for not citing the reference. But it is so true that programs like NUF and a lot of these pro and I, I, I am such a strong believer in first generation, you know, upward bounds, talent search, that whole student SSP, they have all these, everybody has a different initial, but they all do the same. Cal Soaps, the upward bounds, the talent search, EOPS, EOP. I mean, as an EOP alum, there's no way, and I say that with all my heart, that I would be sitting here as a podcast host with the name of Dr. Corliss Mm -hmm, mm Peabody? Are you kidding me? Like, it's unreal. And so it's really interesting how that piece really shaped what you do. And so now, so you've gone through the public, the private, and you went to a private, you went to a public, you went to a four-year 
Republic. I remember you were at Alliant. I, well, they changed their name. It was it's private university. That was a great benefit because that I that's where I finished my doctorate. I didn't have to pay for half of that degree. Um, so and that was a large international student population. So uh, we had campuses in Africa, Mexico City, and in other satellite campuses. So leaving public to a private, there was pros and cons. But I one of the best experiences of working with international students and um, working on my doctorate degree with uh, in organizational development leadership with a whole lot of folks that were um, doing amazing things in, in, in various worlds around the world. Absolutely. So private to public to private to public and you bouncing around, you were definitely working the state of California, the Southern wing of, of California. You, I don't think you came up North too high. I think you had, I think you were allergic to anything past Santa Barbara. If it gets cooler than 60 degrees, I'm not going there. Yeah, that could happen. I understand. So now, you know, as a UC grad myself, working now at a California State University, two of the big things you hear about is the University of California Office of the President and the CSU, California State University Office of the Chancellor. These are the main governing body for these two types of institutions. So we'll just switch over to where you're at, which is the California State University Office of the Chancellor. What do y'all do? I mean, this, you know, break this down because I, you know, always was like, okay, hmm, what's going on that the Chancellor Office, and just to give you a preview, and I'm sure you're going to share, the Chancellor's Office is over 24 or is it 23 or 24? We have 23 campuses. 23. I always say 24. I don't know why. Over 23 campuses. We're one of the largest systems of education in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll let you explain because you work. Let's let you tell the story. And let's give some love to the California Community College, too, and their chancellor's office up in Sacramento. So California State University, the largest four-year university, we have 23 campuses, 480,000 students, 53,000 faculty staff. We reach down for the border of Mexico, where San Diego State University is up to where you're at, Humboldt State. Yay! 800 miles north. In the state of California, one in 10 employees is a CSU grad. Uh, more than half of our students are students of color. 42% of our students are Pell Grant recipients. And one third of our students are first in their family to go to college. So wow. an extremely diverse student population committed to ec- access and equity. Well, you ask what we do. I mean, we have a half a floor of lawyers. We have a half a floor of facilities, folks that are working with Sacramento, what are the the best practices and negotiations for property and and buildings and and oversight for um, what's happening in uh, uh, laws around buildings and facilities and, and our structures. We have IT, information technology. We have a human resource division. Um, and I work in our academic and student affairs area. Um, everything from our study abroad programs, our alumni. We have over 3 million alumni. So you have your campuses that have their alumni relations and directors and alumni staff. Um, but from a system-wide perspective, then we'll have a system-wide alumni folks that works with all of those three campuses. So when you think about all the different aspects of a campus, we'll have a point of contact um, or a staff member or department that supports that. Um, laws and practices are changing all the time in Sacramento and in D.C. And that law gets sent down to us. And how do we interpret that? And then how do we roll out the practices or create the policy that 
then has to uh, address certain policies that are laws that are happening. Whatever the hot trends are, what are we focused on? I'm on our graduation initiative 2025 team. We're focused on increasing our graduation rates um, and eliminating the equity gap. Um, Corliss, if I were to ask you, with our graduation initiative started in, in 2015, what do you think our four-year graduation rate was in 2015 of our 23 campuses? How many percentage of our students graduated in four years? Well, knowing that I'm at a campus where our, our graduation rate is low, I'm going to say 30%. No, a little bit lower. Oh, wow. Okay. I wasn't far off. What is it? In 2015, our four-year graduation rate was 19%. You have got to be kidding me. So when you think about you, you arrive on your, on your campus and you want to, and most students are thinking they're going to graduate in four years. And you and I can sit here and brainstorm all the reasons why our students aren't graduating in four years. And it's a multitude of reasons, right? Everything from issue in the family to working full time to messing up on a class or can't get a class or didn't have those funds or did, you know, whatever it may be, it could be all over the place. So our graduation initiative really is looking at those graduation rates and taking a step back and thinking about what we need to do to help support our students to increase these graduation rates and eliminate this equity gap. So you're in a very key role on your own campus thinking about how do we impact our student success and, you mm-hmm. know, what policies are in place that we created maybe 5, 10, 25 years ago. And we need to evaluate why we created that policy and, and some of these things that are our own responsibilities. Our budgets have been cut. And as we get um, increased funding from the state or from fundraisers or whatever it may be, how are we putting that money back into our campuses intentionally connected to student success or maybe courses that have the long wait list or programs where we need more student graduates or whatever it may be. So being strategic and thoughtful, you know, where students are struggling the most and what programs and services do we need for those specific students, um, increasing the number of advisors and faculty and and just resources um, for our students. So, you know, there's a multitude of conversations and we see those conversations happening, not just in the CSU, but nationally. And how do we lead those and how do we open up ourselves to say, we need to think differently. We need to do business mm. differently. You know, these numbers are not okay. If a student is coming in and, and hoping to graduate in four years and that's their, their plan and they've done all the right stuff, you know, why are they not? So, you know, those are the conversations that our department's um, helping to facilitate with our campuses and, and doing it through a whole a lot of different means. Everything from even the Finish in Four campaign where a student arrives to our campus and signs up for full time, which is 12 units, right, in order to get financial aid. But you and I know as, as being advisors that 12 units a semester is not going to get you out in four years. But who would have known that, right? So, you know, having to reculturate some of our campus culture that 12 units is not sufficient and 15 units was, is more appropriate, unless that's all you can take, you know, for whatever reasons. And then you have to know it'll take longer to graduate or what can you do to, to make up for those units in winter intercession or summer or whatever it may be. So those are the conversations that my department has uh, along with all other of our colleagues um, across the state and our campus leaders and all kinds of initiatives that are happening with um, financial access, completion grants, programs that are specific to certain student populations and being more culturally competent and aligned with uh, the needs of of our diverse students and just thinking outside the box, innovation and and using technology um, to help us uh, support student success. So let me just make sure I heard you correctly. 2015, this is the statewide four-year 
graduation rate. That was. So yes, that's where the whole 2025 comes into play. This past year, 2019, our graduation rate is now up to 27%. And that's our four-year graduation rate, our six-year graduation rate, 62%. And not too far off, you know, national averages when you look at public institutions that kind of match our campuses. And they vary campus to campus and program to program. And that's not even diving into people like us who are first generation, people of color, uh, that rate um, must be even more alarming, but that's another topic for another uh, podcast. Wow. But that's amazing. I do remember a time I don't, I can't remember the year where the California state system or, and the UC, maybe it was the UC system. One of the, either one or both were saying, okay, students are taking forever to graduate. We know that part. And so, but it was because of the remedial coursework that they were in when they came in as freshmen. So if you're taking remedial, I was on the quarter system at University of California, Riverside. Most people are semester system. But if you're taking remedial work your freshman year, and by the time you get to English 101 and you're a sophomore, you're definitely going to do five years. I mean, and it depends on how long it takes you to get out of those remedial. And I remember them trying to do something where they were stopping that from happening. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? That's another one of the projects or initiatives that rolled out of our graduation initiative. And we were looking at the number of students that completed the A through G requirement. They took all the correct classes in order to apply to our university. And they, um, had to take the placement test, the placement math, the placement English test. So you've taken all the right classes. You've been admitted. You had your SAT scores. You met the minimum. Um, you're ready to arrive on our campus. And you took the course uh, placement test. And for whatever reason, your placement on that that test result showed that you were not ready for a college-level math and English. And there's been a number of states um, nationally that had already changed this. And when you looked at the breakdown of the statistics of those students that were, were placing in remedial, it was a large percentage. Of, of our students of color, our African American, Southeast Asian, African uh, Latino students, and so we did have a uh, work groups and looking at that policy and change that policy and relooking at student placement and utilizing other resource, resources. For example, their GPA, their SAT scores, their results of their Smarter Balance and their and their high school test taking. And when we think about the number of students that with that policy change and not necessarily being placed in remedial, but being placed in maybe a course that has additional support services that are now mandatory because they may need additional support. Um, And we had a number of students that were taking those classes and getting zero units for that course. And then that adding on to needing more coursework. And then we have a a whole lot of students like myself. I went to a university right out of four-year, took that placement test during orientation, scored really low on that test and was going to have to take remedial. And for me coming right from a small town, rural community, first my family, um, that told me that I wasn't going to be able to survive that university. So um, I took myself home um, in tears with my family that I wasn't going to be, I wasn't ready for a four-year university. So how many of our students may have had that same anxiety and feeling that they didn't belong because they scored low on that remedial, I'm sorry, that placement test and had to take remedial. So since changing that um, practice, we've had an increased number of students who are now uh, completing that first year of math or English with the supplemental instruction or other types of support services and moving right into along their academic career path and receiving credit for the work that they have completed. So we really feel that in the four years, we're going to have an influx of students graduating um, closer to their goals of, of graduation because they didn't have the 
to spend time in a course that wouldn't have given them any units or could have done other detrimental thing, thinking uh, things to what they they felt they would be successful in higher ed. What's really helping here in the state of California, and you mentioned a shout out earlier to the California Community Colleges, which have, I want to say last count was 113 uh, California Community Colleges. What's happening now in the state is that the first year is free. And I want to say now some campuses, the second year is free, which then would earn that student uh, uh, an associate's degree. But the other piece that has really helped with this piece about remedial is that high school students are taking courses at their local community college. And that has been helping our students to get ready for freshman level English, freshman level math. Yeah, the College Promise has been around for a number of years. Um, Long Beach City College is one of the first College Promise programs. And it's been this commitment um, to your school district and the community college and the four-year university that if you do follow ABCD, we will have a seat for you. And the College Promise is a Senate bill or Assembly bill, believe it's AB 15 passed um, this past year. And that was the free to college free tuition. That's part of the college, the college promise. So, you know, how do we create that pipeline um, for the K through 12 community college and have a seamless educational experience between K through 12 community colleges and the four-year university. So just even psychologically knowing that there's a seat for you, we want you and uh, affordability is not a, a, a cost of tuition is not an, an issue or an obstacle for not going to college. So that's going to yield hopefully really positive success. There's some research studies out of MDRC and the Kretzky, the Kretzky Foundation, I believe. They're going to talk about those programs and, you know, pros and cons, you know, because we can all call a, pro, a program a college promise, but are we putting the support systems and mechanisms in place or is it just a, a piece of paper? So um, those are conversations that will have to take place for the campuses that are now jumping on board because to be intentional about that pipeline, me, as you know, means having those resources in play for those influx of students at varying levels of resources and the need for the advisement, the placement, and um, the courses to be there too. And, and my listeners have heard me say this over and over. Without EOP, I would not be here. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a, quote, college promise program in high school. However, um, once my mom did hear about the EOP, I was able to apply and become a student. And without that six week, and this is before all the budget cuts of the state of California happened. I'm a little older than you. So in the 80s, when I was in school, EOP was it. If you, and you know, and, and the whole push was to go to a UC because if you have, you were the top 10% of your class, you were kind of not guaranteed, but semi-guaranteed and offered a seat. And that EOP scooped the rest of us up that were the top 10% of our class, but our SATs were down towards the core of the universe that the only way that I got in was under special recognition through our chancellor at that time, God rest her soul. Uh, Chancellor Rosemary was just instrumental in and allowing me, she saw the potential and she, I came in a special admit and I had to be in the EOP program. And Again, like College Promise, where a student can feel like, okay, if I do A, B, C, D, and E, they're going to give me a seat. That gives me a little more love as an EOP student having the opportunity to live on campus for six weeks, 
because we don't do that anymore. I've heard now these uh, the summer bridge programs are three days. And I'm like, what can you do in three days? They're all over the place. Yeah. So EOP is an educational opportunity program. Mm-hmm. And one of our premier programs and, you know, an educational equity program that specifically for first generation low income students that apply for the program and they do provide special admits. Um, and it's a holistic review of students, you know, that have had maybe more challenges than others and, and need that additional support and are provided a counselor that they'll have over the course of four years, um, a book stipend, additional resources and support services. Um, and Summer Bridge is that summer component. And they're everywhere from, I'm not sure the three-day one, but a couple weeks to a month. Um, so it just depends on what campus and how many resources and right. how many students they have. And the community colleges had the EOPS program, a little bit mm-hmm. of a similarity. Um, I'm not sure of who may have summer bridge programs, but that opportunity to come on campus during the summer and feel, you know, be a valid student in your cohort program before school even starts and the crowds come and you get lost in the in the excitement of the first week of school is really one of the most valuable resources um, serving our first-generation students. So before we run out of time, just a side note, I felt the pain that you did getting into the EO program, ELP program, and we had to take the placement test then because we actually were, were, we were enrolled in English and math, if depending on which test you. And so I scored high in the English and I was probably the below average somewhere back in second grade math person. And so I had the low math and the high English. So it kind of worked out because I was helping students with helping them with their essays and they were trying to drill that foil method in me and I just couldn't get it. But because of that, it was very instrumental in who I am today. So as we get ready to close in a minute, I run to make sure that we touch on you know, what types of things does the Office of Chancellor, you mentioned something about dealing with statewide initiatives and nationwide initiatives. And just briefly, as we come to a conclusion, if you can give us a little bit about that, because your information has been so valuable to our listeners. Yeah, there's been uh, so many different projects that have come out driven by the needs of our students, driven by the hot topics and the trends that's happening in higher ed, driven by the needs of California, our graduation initiative. One of the purposes is needing more college-educated professionals to meet the workforce demands. So another project that came out was uh, our chancellor, upon his arrival to the California State University, learned about the number of students that were dealing with food and housing and security from his conversations and visits. And so he commissioned two of our faculty, and Dr. Rashida Crutchfield at Cal State Long Beach and Dr. Jen McGuire at Cal State Humboldt up at your camp. Mm, yes, yes. Oh, she is an amazing, amazing person. Yes, she is. And so they surveyed all... 480,000 students. And from that survey, they had about a 6% response rate, found about 10.9% of our students experiencing some type of housing and security, meaning they were couch surfing, you know, staying mm-hmm. with different friends or family members, sleeping in their cars. And mm-hmm. about 42% of our students experiencing food insecurity, meaning they were skipping a meal or, you know, trying to hustle their next meal because of uh, whatever, you know, financial resources that were available to them. So because of that, our chancellor is committed to, we hired a a director of basic needs and wellness and looking at all 23 of our campuses have initiated some type of programs. Most of them have started out with food pantries and a food pantry solely to become like a point of entry or a point of initial resource or, uh, you know, um, addressing an initial need and then connecting students to additional resources of 
for example, the CalFresh, the SNAP food stamps program, um, emergency housing in, fac- uh, in the dorms, hotel vouchers. Uh, we found a number of students that maybe have classes on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then they live two hours away. So they're sleeping in their cars just for those two nights. And so um, making affordable hotel vouchers available for somebody that just needed a couple of days. And all kinds of programs are that are popping up. Our universities are starting to partner with affordable housing resources, the mayor's office, and identifying affordable housing for our students, emergency housing resources, and utilizing some of the resources that are out there that we didn't necessarily always collaborate with our county social services or be aware of all the resources that are out there. So how do we erase the stigmatism amongst our campus to have those conversations? How do we educate and become aware of all those resources are out there? How do we scale up? some of these programs and services? How are we students that aren't using their food, their meal plans can donate a meal to the program. And then a student that's dealing with an emergency can have a meal card with donated meals. How do we scale up these programs to expand and to serve the vast needs? And so we have a calstate.edu forward slash basic needs is a, the website for many of these resources and happy to share and highlight the number of amazing programs and initiatives that's happening across our 23 campuses thanks to the leadership um, of each of our campuses and then the vision of Chancellor White at seeing that this is a, a concern um, that the students felt safe enough to share with him and um, invested in the research and the programming to start this conversation. And quickly, what was that website? It was California State? Cal State dot edu forward slash basic needs. Gotcha. Okay. We framed out the term basic needs, addressing the whole perspective of food and housing and security. And, you know, thinking about kind of like that Pavlov's dog, that those basic needs that everybody should be able to to have access to. to. And as we're supporting student success and we're thinking about obstacle towards our graduation, you know, you can't focus in a class if you're hungry. Right. Absolutely. I've been writing like I'm crazy here. I heard you say 42% food insecurity. What was the housing insecurity um, percentage statewide? The students experiencing being homeless and housing insecure is about uh, 10.9%. Really? That low? Yeah. Interesting. I, maybe it's just per campus, it, it gets kind of high. But 10% housing insecurity, 42% of uh, statewide is food insecurity. Correct. And and our colleagues at the University of California and the California Community Colleges have now done their own system-wide surveys and gathering their own research and rolling out their programs. And we also meet as a statewide higher education um, group because these conversations can't happen siloed within an institution or with that with that campus. We need the par- partnership of our, our city and our county and our regional partners, social service agencies, national USDA that does the food stamps in and how do we work together at securing the resources that our students are in are um, eligible for and then how do we advocate for them on a on a on a regional statewide and and we've been really pretty successful at, at securing some additional funds for these conversations and actually and they're hosting a statewide conference at the end of next month Next month, there'll be a statewide conference for our California community colleges, UC and CSU regarding the basic needs programs. Wow, Dr. Sabrina. Wow, you have really, I mean, this is a perfect position for you to be in a, in a part of an office that is looking at this, at these statewide initiatives that we lived 
you know, and now now has become, you know, prevalent in all, across the United States. Housing insecurity, food insecurity, that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother podcast that now we have to end having so much fun with you and, and learning so much good information about our state of California. But we must wrap up now. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you found value in what you've heard, please share the podcast with other student affairs practitioners. I look forward to having you next time as we share practical tips to aid in your own student affairs journey. Until next time, have a great day or evening. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time.